Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here in the city of Westminster on a sunny day as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Kevin Strong. Kevin is the Managing Director and Co-Founder of 24X Limited in Worthing, West Sussex, an award-winning company specialised in SMS text messaging for businesses. Kevin, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure having you, Kevin. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is about leadership and getting your take on that. And leadership is really being put to the test at the moment in the current climate, isn't it? With, um, of course, COVID-19 and business leaders having to navigate their firms through that. Tell me, for um, somebody in your industry, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a huge challenge. It has been. Um, the Obviously, we're all in lockdown and we've got all our uh, staff working from home which is good because we're fairly automated in terms of uh, no one has to actually be in the uh, office unless we have a uh, sort of hardware issue of uh, some sort um, but what we're finding is that our customer base um, has been it like uh, you know, like the uh, world has basically and um, but it comes in two parts. We've got um, customers who um, have basically stopped business completely because SMS goes across all our industries. So we send for all sorts of customers. So those who are, uh, let's say, in a leisure industry or estate agents, hospitality, all that sort of traffic um, has, has actually ceased. Uh, so we've seen a big sort of uh, you know, drop-off in, uh, in volumes there. Uh, other sides of it are still ticking over uh, things like uh, deliveries. Uh, so uh, people seem to be ordering a lot of stuff online. So notifications of deliveries, um, chemists, prescription requests, and that sort of thing. Uh, that's starting to uh, sort of continue um, at the same level. But obviously, we have to keep in touch with each other and, mm. uh, and you know, support our, our customer base as best we can. Absolutely. And part of uh, good leadership is, of course, maintaining a strong communication as well. And that's something that's really coming to the fore at the moment, too. Um, it is often said that these are very much unprecedented times with what business is having to do and what the government's having to do to safeguard business. Um, can you think of a time in your career when you've been faced with challenges like this before? Because we have had the financial crash in 2008, but I think this is something that's very different, isn't it? This is totally different. Um, I, I can't recall anything in my lifetime um, that I've experienced as, as widespread and as uh, sort of catastrophic as this, um, and, and truly worldwide. I mean, we send SMS messages all over the world, uh, not just in the UK. And so this has affected you know, every single country that we're, we're sending to um, and virtually every single client that we deal with. So um, it's it, new ground, really, in terms of how we deal with it, um, how we uh, cope with um, you know, what's going on, and how we navigate our way through to the end, really. And what would you say is the uh, biggest lesson that you've learned from this um, whole uh, pandemic and this crisis? Because um, there, it is a huge learning curve for businesses, this as well, isn't it? I think, yes. I think, uh, well, technology is the uh, key in our industry. It's certainly what we use every day in our industry. But uh, once you move to um, a sort of a lockdown situation and remote working, then technology 
really comes to the to the front. Uh, good internet connections. Everybody needs to have um, access to their their email. You all need to be in uh, some form of uh, group, whether it's a social media type group, a WhatsApp or a Facebook Messenger, something where you can all um, chat and uh, converse about things that need to be done or queries that you have. Yes, so it's almost like being in the office, but you you have to be a bit more disciplined uh, because you're at home and there can be other distractions. But um, I think once you've got, uh, you know, we've got a very good uh, team of people who are all you know, very highly motivated themselves um, and really you know, want to do the best for the, for the company, which is great. Mm. It's interesting that you talk about the team there and having uh, those sort of innate qualities, that self-motivation, that hunger, that desire, as it were. Um, do you think that that's something that um, people who are endeavouring to become great leaders can learn along their careers? Or is that hunger, that self-motivation, something that you kind of need to have from the very beginning? Almost you have to be born with it. Um, I'd say you, 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 you oh, it's probably 50 50. Um, you do need that ambition and that uh drive to to, you know, to want to be uh, as best as you can be and to try and get to the top. Uh, some of it is learned uh, along the way, and obviously, in my career, I've been uh, I've worked in uh, various corporates uh before starting uh 24x with my uh, my colleague. And um, those are, are valuable lessons. So I think you, you learn things along the way, but I think that you, you've got to have uh, certain drive yourself um, in order to, uh, to to be at the top. And you can see this when you look at you know business leaders generally. You know those who are um, at the top have been very motivated you know, right from the first go um, in all sorts of uh, of businesses. Mm. And you mentioned business leaders there um, who have worked their way to the top. Are there any examples of uh, people in leadership positions who've maybe had an influence on you and maybe inspired you throughout your career as well, Kevin? Um, well, uh, I mean, Richard Branson you know, stands out as um, you know, somebody who's, who's, I think, has um, you know, uh, set, set his goals as to what he wants and has achieved it. You've got to look at people like Elon Musk. Um, you know, to, uh, you know to, to create one private business in your lifetime is a very good achievement. And if you look at people like that, and they started you know, one business, sold it for a lot of money, started another business. Um, and those sort of things are to be admired. And I think um, it, it, that takes a lot of sort of self-motivation and drive and skill. And do you think that those people um, could have got to where they were without um, sort of taking the plunge and taking risks, as it were, trying things, maybe making mistakes, learning from them, and then using that to improve? Oh, I definitely think um, yes. I mean, I was brought up with the, the saying that you know, if you don't uh, if you don't make a mistake, you don't make anything. So I think people who um, are willing to to take uh, risks, some take you know huge risks. Um, um, and sometimes it was calculated risk. So there's a balancing act there. But I think, yes, they have to um, not only take those risks, but you've got to get over the adversity. You know, if something fails, then you learn from it, you move on, and you, know, you try something in a different way or try something totally, totally different. But it, it's a bit more than that. It needs some skill to sort of um, apply you know, the lessons learned 
learned from whatever you've done in order to uh, uh, move on and create something better. Absolutely right. And do you think that sometimes amongst some business leaders that there is a little bit of a fear of failure, like um, maybe um, they don't want to take risks because they don't want to be seen to fail. They don't want to put themselves in the firing line for criticism, whereas perhaps we should be telling especially the younger generations of emerging leaders to embrace failure and be willing to learn from it, because ultimately you're not going to get anywhere. Um, Yes, I think so. I think um, people get to a stage where they can be very uh, you know, comfortable in what they're doing, um, and they they're in a plateau effectively, and they're not willing to take uh, the next risk. They're happy with their their lot, and I think this is what distinguishes people between you know, leaders and truly you know, great leaders who have moved on um, and taken the, the bigger risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Um, it, I was just about to say, Kevin, it links um, into that big um, I word, doesn't it? Innovation more than anything else. Yes, they need to be innovative, and but they're not not reckless. This is the thing. Um, a lot of people, um, you can't just say to someone, "Well, you know, failure after failure, um, and you, you're not learning anything." Um, that's okay. It isn't. You, you've got to you know, take the lessons learned and improve on it as you go, and, um, and, and that way uh, you can build you know, a, a business to the sort of level that you you want. Um, and um, if we think about um, your career for a moment, Kevin, when you were sort of quite early in sort of your um, journey to becoming a leader, did you always imagine that you would ultimately end up uh, running your own business and being in a position of leadership yourself as well? Um, I'd say initially probably not. Um, I started um, in an insurance company um, in a software uh, department and we were writing software for the company. And I think. Uh, you, you sort of have a career progression, and I, I moved up as I, as I went. Um, but I also I think you it, you're influenced by people you meet, um, and I met some you know some equally very you know, clever people, bright people, and um, in my career, uh, an opportunity came along where we thought, well, uh, you know, we could start twenty four X. If, um, if we wanted to, I mean, we had a, we had very successful careers, um, were well paid, you know, company cars, so it was a huge, a huge undertaking um, to just give all that up and say we're going to start the company. But you, you, again, when you've got a good team around you and good people, you talk it through, uh, you do all the calculations, and you you try and minimise that risk, or at least in your own mindset, think, yes, it, yeah, now is the time to give it a go. Uh, make the investment and and see what happens. Uh, it, it, and, you know, that was the biggest risk, really, to to give up everything at that point and start the project, which was twenty years ago now. I think it's really interesting as well that you talk about influences being colleagues and people that you've worked with and worked for as well earlier in your career, because quite often good and effective leadership at that level is um, overlooked in a way, isn't it? Because people when we think of leaders, attempted to think of people who are in the public eye, who are perhaps celebrity figures, sports personalities, politicians, and quite often at the business level especially, good and effective leadership can quite often go unnoticed. I, I think you're right. Um, I think what, what what you tend to hear more of are the charismatic people, the sort of figureheads of organisations. They're clever in their, their own right, but behind them, they, you know, they have lots of some very clever people. And I think... Um, 
if you looked at business you know, business leaders who are, are well-known names, there are you know, lots of clever people behind them who may not come to the uh, forefront in terms of well-known names, uh, but they do a, a fantastic job. They may not want to come to the forefront. Yeah, they're quite, um, you know, when you build a team, you don't build a team of all the same people that's got the same characteristics as yourself. You've got to have uh, you know, people who are, you know, some might be backroom people, you know, as clever as anything, but they do not want the limelight. Others are you know, more on the front of company, others are very good on the finance. And I think that's the key um, as a leader to, to bring all these people together um, who are skilled. Um, and that was, that's what makes a good, good organisation. And surrounding yourself with positive people, people who will get the best out of you, but you can also nurture the best out of them is probably one of the best piece of adv- pieces of advice that you could give to somebody about to embark on their first day in a leadership role, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. The more uh, yes, positive people you've got, you do not want uh, negative people. You, you, can, you can take uh, criticism, constructive criticism, and you know, comments about uh, you know, uh, approaches. But I think Overall, you've got to have a team that's um, a, a positive, believe in your the overall goals of, of what the company is and what you're trying to achieve, and then they can help flesh out how you're actually going to you know, navigate to, to get there. And then collectively, uh, you, you can implement it and uh, you know achieve greatness. I would say. Mm. And if we do think about um, the future, uh, before we do uh, wrap things up um, as well, Kevin, um, do tell me what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself and for 24X and what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly navigating COVID-19 and coming out of the other side of the pandemic. Right. Well, it, it's going to be a difficult, a very difficult year. Um, once We're not going to come out of lockdown at the flip the switch. It's going to be a gradual, gradual process. Businesses are going to start um, returning to some semblance of, of normal with you know, social distancing still going on, etc. From our point of view, the what we hope is that the clients that um, we have uh, a will continue to send. Those who have um, stopped or have used up will come back into the uh, the frame. Now, that will be things like holiday parks, estate agents, etc. So they definitely want to get back to business. And what we're hoping is that they'll be using you know, our text messaging services to um, kickstart their own industries. So um, if we're lucky, we'll, we'll get a bit of a, uh, a sort of uh, a bounce and, and people will use text to uh, to re-engage with their customer base and their prospects and things, and in which case we will start to see um, you know, our levels coming back to uh, to where they were sort of, you know, later in the year. I can't put a time frame on that, but that's what I'm hopeful of. So we're, we're sort of at a, yeah, we dip down, we're uh, muddling along at the moment with, uh, with those who can send, and then as the lockdown eases, industries will come back into it, hopefully with a vengeance. And and we could be sending it even more, but I think yeah, it's a, it's going to be well. Time will tell, but it's going to be quite a long time. 
Absolutely right. Uh, time will tell them um, on this. And uh, what might be really interesting for the listeners as well, Kevin, is in a few months' time when the mist starts to lift, we can maybe revisit this and have you back on the programme just to see how the business is doing and how British industry has fared in the months to come. Um, but for now, I have to say Perfect. it's been um, an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme and also a really insightful experience. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the listeners' benefit today. That's great. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it as well, Kevin. Thank you so much. Um, okay. Coming up next, take care, take care Kevin. Coming up okay, next good. on um, the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this? Perhaps that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury. Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning 
from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped m me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately
But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities... Does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? 
just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about 
the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup. I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I... Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, fathers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of, you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. 
a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner, 
Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.